Hey, what's up? And welcome to Sons of Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Wojak, and alongside me, as always, is Luke Smith. We've got a whole bunch to talk about today. Off the top, we'll be joined by Greg Fumung, writer for UHND.com, to discuss the blue and gold game and the end of this spring practice session. We'll also get into the Jordan Johnson transfer news, which set message boards and Twitter ablaze on Monday morning. Look, it's definitely tough news coming out of South Bend, but my God, the reaction from some fans is a little out of control, to say the least. Um, then we'll do some NFL draft talk because Notre Dame's 2021 NFL draft class was among the best in college football with nine total selections. And finally, we'll give our thoughts in the ACC Network special about Notre Dame's one year in the Atlantic Coast Conference. All right, we're joined by Greg Flamung, writer for UHND.com and host of the Notre Dame USC football podcast. Greg, what was the only real extensive look we could get into this Notre Dame football team during the spring? What were some of your biggest takeaways from last Saturday? Um, my biggest takeaways were a, the, uh, the defensive front seven is going to be a beast. Um, just like all of them. Um, you know, I think we knew that going into it, but just watching it and all the bodies they can send out there, um, the poor offensive line, the the, the offensive line, I feel like has backups and I feel like the defensive line kind of doesn't there's, there's five or six guys um, on just like the defensive line, maybe even more than that, that if they started, I'd feel good about it. And that's not the case with the offensive line. So, um, and that's probably, that's probably not the case for most schools. So um, I think the offensive line or the defensive line, the defensive front seven was um, one of them. And then the other one was, so that was the one for the defense. The other Takeaway, not so much from the spring game, but just the spring in general, was that Blake Fisher and Rocco Spindler are looking like they're real. You know, and that's that's a pretty big deal. I think a lot of people are fixated on the fact that they're freshmen, but to me, it's more important that you know you get two top fifty guys and you need them to hit. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that problem in, at another position in a little bit, but. But when you get two top 50 guys and they're freshmen, to me, it's like we, we, we've accumulated talent at a premium position. And, you know, that's more important to me than, you know, worrying about things like whether their strength is going to be there in the fall. That's something they can work on in the meantime. But the fact that the talent is there and then they're the goods, I think that's the most important part of it. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. I think, I totally agree with your point on the defensive line. It seems like you can kind of just plug guys in and out seamlessly without that being a worry. And I think kind of just more broadly, the defense, and I think we expected this this fall, is just a little bit ahead of the offense. And that is probably going to be the case going into going into the fall, going into camp. Um, and, it, you know, from the score of the game, whatever it was, 17 to 3, I think the indication might be that it was a little bit of a, a snooze fest. It made me reflect a little bit on kind of when I was in school and, I saw somebody tweet saying that they had never gone to a blue gold game during their four years in Notre Dame. And I, I realized I, I don't think I did either I um, either. because <laughs> it's usually the, it's a great way to introduce if you have little kids or a family, great way to kind of introduce them to Notre Dame football. But it's typically the day of like the biggest party of the year in Notre Dame pigged hostels. So it's a great day for most Notre Dame students to go to this kind of overrated party, pay uh, way too much money for some terrible keg beer. And in our case, our year, I think it paved the way for a former Notre Dame swimmer to kind of collect that money and then live in Guatemala for six months, if you remember that, Woj. So uh, (laughs) 
but but yeah, um, I guess that's kind of my takeaway from from kind of that large largely. But from an individual standpoint, Greg, whose performance stood out to you the most on Saturday? Um, I was keeping with the theme of you know the the offensive line I was talking about. I would say Blake uh, Blake Fisher. I was very and he was probably the one player that I was very excited to see because I think it's most likely of him and Spindler. I think it's most likely that he is the one who starts. And since he's at left tackle, that's super, super important position. And I thought he, he handled himself really well. Um, I, 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 you know, he was matched up a lot with Isaiah Foskey and Foskey just didn't, you know, he, he just, he just, he didn't handle him. Like you would think he would a freshman, you know, it, I feel like Foskey had his had a couple moments there, um, and especially in the run game. But beyond that, F- Fisher handled himself really well. I think that was the one thing, like the one individual player for me, where you know that you're not. I don't think they're going to sub out their left tackle. I know they did that with on the right side with Hainsey and Kramer. I don't think they're going to do a timeshare over there because um, that's not really using your best five linemen. Um, I don't think there's, I don't think there's five other guys, you know, better than Fisher at this moment. So seeing him move around and just how big he is, that to me stuck out probably more than anyone else. And obviously the quarterbacks, they kind of have their own, um, you know, they have their own little separate, they're kind of in a separate category than the rest of the team. Um, So on a non quarterback front, I would say Blake Fisher. When you said big, he's listed as six foot six, three thirty. That's that's a little bit bigger than I even thought. And I think maybe one of the most underrated aspects of being an early enrollee is you do get earlier access into the Bat Bayless training program because he's in there. What as soon as the semester starts, right in January? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he gets another six months or maybe five months, I guess. So that was really important. I really liked Lawrence Keys. Tommy Reese had a quote. Um, I think like in the week leading up to the game where he said Lawrence Keyes had as good of a spring as anyone. And that really showed he had five catches, um, 115 yards. And one other thing that I really, really liked was Chris Tyree, at least early on in the game. We've talked a lot about Jordan Johnson being a five-star. Chris Tyree was a five-star too, and he got access to the field early. And I think he's going to be poised for a breakout game. One of my favorite plays of the game was when he ran this out route. It was like a crisp route. It shows he can be pretty effective in the passing game. And if that's the case, then Notre Dame is able to play 21 personnel a lot with Kyron and Tyree, two clearly of their best playmakers on the field at the same time. But, Greg, to sort of keep it on the offense note, a lot's been made about Tommy Reese's offensive philosophy, um, but he stated on many occasions that he's going to structure the offense around the strengths and weaknesses of his roster every year. So with that in mind, what were some of the biggest differences you saw on that side of ball on Saturday compared to last season? I think, well... On Saturday, it was kind of tough. They kept it. They didn't do a lot of the 21 personnel that you're talking about because um, they had Tyree and Kyron on different teams. I I think that is going to be like, I think you touched on it there. I think that's going to be the thing where last year it was so much 12 because of Tremble and Mayer. I think it's going to be the opposite this year. I think think it's going to be a lot of the the 21 with Kyron and Tyree out there. Um, And just, you know, we saw we saw a bunch of five wide sets for one um, on both sides, which wasn't really a thing last year. Um, I don't think they felt they had the wide receivers for that. They opened up with that on yeah, the first play. The did. whole thing, it was five wide. They did. And 
you know, I think Cone is probably a little bit more comfortable doing that. He's a little bit more comfortable going through progressions. He can handle the five where Ian was more of like a one read guy. He's, you know, one or two read or half field at least. And, you know, you, you don't want to give him a bunch of options because he, that kind of jumbles his brain. I think Cone is more adept at that. Um, we saw the RPO game, you know, the, 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 the play where Joe Wilkins um, got hit by Ajavon that, that uh, stripped him of the touchdown. They knocked the ball out for a touchdown on a slant. That was an RPO the play. The targeting or the would have been targeting? It definitely would have been targeting. <laughs> okay. He wouldn't have been in the uh, game. Yeah, we're thinking the same one. Yeah, for sure. Um, that, that was an RPO, right? Which we didn't really see that much in the red zone last year. Um, we, we saw, you know, they, they on, the, on the play where Cone missed Avery Davis, that was, a, that was an audible. You know, the, the, the coaches changed it from the sideline. And then, you know, we saw Cone make sort of a gesture towards the receivers. Maybe he's bluffing. Maybe he's actually setting them up on a route. But, you know, they got Avery Davis in an isolation against DJ Brown. And that's a matchup they like. And Avery Davis won the matchup. It was just the ball was overthrown. And, you know, in the spring game, whatever, it's a practice. No problem. Um, in a game, obviously you want that completed, but just the idea that they're being more aggressive there, they're, they're seeking out a matchup, um, to, to, to take a shot, right. You're not running the ball there. You're not trying to grind it in the end zone. It's like, we're going to go for it right here. So, um, it's stuff like that, that we saw in the spring game that we also saw a bunch just in the three minute clips that they showed. So, um, I would say the passing game is more open because they have a quarterback who, who is not going to revert to his legs as quickly as Ian did. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess I'm curious. I know I saw you, you tweet about a little about this in, in your breakdown, how kind of some of the quarterback stat lines might be a little bit deceiving from that game, partially due to wind, other factors. But in, at large, how did you feel about the play of the three quarterbacks on Saturday? Um, I saw, so I viewed Cone as – before the pick, I was feeling really good. And then he threw the pick and I really didn't <laughs> like it. I, that just bothered me. Um, Cause it's like, there's no excuse for that. Like that's not even, you can't even say like, Oh, I was taking a chance. Like it's a five yard out. You can't throw picks. Yeah, on five yeah. yard out. He stared him down to the whole time. Yeah. And that's, and I don't know if, and I don't know if you guys noticed this, but that was right after Kyron had had three kind of straight plays where he was um, he was used. And he had to have been out of gas. That happened a few times, actually, where the, the, you know, Tyree, they gave him the ball a bunch on one certain drive. And like on the third and two, when he got stopped, like that was like his third straight, fourth straight play. It was like, he got to be tired. Um, and the same thing with Kyron. And so Kyron can't run a kind of ran like a lazy route. And Shane Simon's probably seen it a bunch of times in practice. So he just jumps it real quick and then, you know, he gets picked off. But beyond that, I thought Cone, he looked like a quarterback they can win with. You know, he can, he can operate the offense. He, he can pick out the players. He looked real good in the pocket. He looked real super confident in the pocket. He's hanging in there. Um, they saw him on bootlegs. He throws an accurate ball. He throws it with good zip. Um, he, he likes to take shots. So I, I don't know, you know, there's that whole, is he good enough to – you know, is he elite? Is he going to, is he a difference maker in that regard? Time will tell there. He needs to get Kevin Austin. We didn't see Michael Mayer in the game. 
Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot that can be added that we'll, that we'll see from him. As far as pine, I, I wrote that he, he seemed to me to be in like an Ian book type without the legs. And, and so that's it's not that great. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's to me, it's like kind of damning to me. It's, it's, uh, I think I I'll, I'll say this for him. I think that he, he is a lot more decisive than Ian was. Um, at least when he was at least later in his career, because Ian had the legs, you know, he always had that. It's like, Oh, I can just get out of here, you know, and Drew doesn't have that. His anticipation is really good. Um, it better than Ian's was that I ever remember it being. So, but it's just like, he doesn't like the, the, the opposite field throw. It just kind of sail a little bit. He's good. He's good throwing it over the middle, just like Ian, Ian was when he tried to do that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, it's hard. It's hard. It's they, they keep calling it a competition. It's hard to say. Um, how, how does Drew Pine catch Cone when Cone is the better athlete and he's the and he's the the more experienced player? I just Pine would have to be so much better as a thrower. And I just didn't really see that in the game. I think I, I don't feel bad. Like if they put him in a game, he had to come in or start a game at one point. I think Notre Dame could win with him. Um, but you know, it's, it, could they win long-term with him? I don't know if I see that. And I mean, Buckner, I mean, look, look, these guys, the time is ticking. The clock is ticking. Cause that kid, when he figures it out, it, it's a wrap. He, he is the guy that will stand back there and empty and, and, you know, one back set, like a 10 personnel. And he will just, he's just going to sling it and he's going to deal. And it's going to be awesome because he, he doesn't know what he's doing right now, but when he does it, there is no one who has anything, the skill set that he's got. Yeah. I feel like for Cone and Pine, neither of their stats are going to jump off the chart. Although Cone did start like eight for 11 for 114 yards. Mm -hmm. And that's when he threw the pick. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of went South from there. Um, But Cone just looked better. He looked more comfortable for sure. He did have that missed pass to Davis, which is a little bit frustrating, but like, you know, is Davis even there? If he doesn't check to it, we don't know. Pine showed flashes. Um, I thought there was like one, a really funny moment in the game when they tossed it to the sideline reporter and she was like hyping up Pine about how he had this great spring. And then he just threw like a terrible mm. pick in the middle of mm. her talking about it. So I thought that was funny. And then he flashed again with that throw to keys down the middle. Great, great pass. Like he's had time to step up, really rifled one down the middle. And then he followed that up with three incomplete passes close to the red zone. So a little bit of give and take there, but it seems like Cone is going to be the starter. I don't, it looks like they're going to drag out the quarterback competition for a little bit longer, um, but we'll see about that. And then, yeah, as for Buckner, Luke and I coming into this game, like I'm not going to lie, we were just very, I don't want to say pessimistic, but we were nervous just given his lack of experience lately. So, Luke, how do you feel coming out of that game now seeing Buckner um, not have a Phil Dracovic s spring game where we question if he could even throw the ball? Well, I, I think that if you reflect back on that Dracovic spring game where he had the, the red jersey on and took God knows how many sacks, it 12. was it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which it doesn't even I, seem possible. I, I think it was good and judicious of Kelly to, to let Buckner take some contact so that he wouldn't, you know, have that same sort of uh, – 
experience. Not that he was necessarily under duress like that most of the game, but um, there were a couple plays in that game, even with Pine and Cone, where I felt like it wouldn't necessarily have been a sack if, you know, if they had not been wearing the red jerseys. But having having seen now Buckner in, in some game experience against Notre Dame defense, um, it was definitely enjoyable to watch. I mean, the stat line, obviously, is what, six for nine with a 140 yards and, and led both touchdown drives, which is great to see. But it was just exciting, um, and and I think that's probably the the most we can get out of a, a lot of these spring games. It's just something to to look forward to, or something that we can that we can take away that we can look forward to. And that's definitely how I felt watching him on Saturday, and, and excited to see kind of how that evolves moving forward here. Yeah, I agree. All right, Greg. Now let's go to the other side of the ball. We haven't really talked about them a whole lot. This is the first time we really got to see Marcus Freeman's new defense in action. What stood out to you? Uh, just the, I mean. The aggressiveness of everybody. I mean, just people flying around. I mean, I you had you had Bull Bauer, the, the linebackers. You know, I mean, the defensive line. We talked about it. Like we saw, we've seen them play aggressively before. I think the linebackers were just everywhere. I mean, I Maris is flying into gaps. Bauer is shooting in the backfield. Jack Kaiser was everywhere. I mean, I he he looks he looked real good. I mean, he, he, I, I really liked what I saw from him. I, I, if he ended up as a starter, I would, I would feel totally fine with that. Um, and then just to compete level in the secondary, you know, that was, that to me was probably the biggest happy surprise of, of just the defense, just, you know, you got Caleb offered and Justin Walters making plays on Lawrence keys, you know, and, these are, I, I don't know where Caleb Offord is on the depth chart. You know, is he the fifth or sixth player? But like no easy, like no easy plays. You, you can't, you're not just going to run by me. You know, you're not just going to, you're not, you're not just going to give, you know, I'm not going to give you something, give something away that look, I look like a walk on. Like, no, it, you can make a perfect throw against me and I'll get beat. But if it's not, then it's going to get sent back. And a perfect one is the, is the play by Walters. I mean, look, Drew Pine needs to, needs to get that ball outside. Right. And as soon as it happens, you see afterwards, Larry Kesey, you know, he points like, I want it out here. And it's not, it's not a terrible throw. Right. And against a a player who's not up to it, who's not very good and just not ready to compete yet. Like you could, you would, Justin Walters early enrollee freshman. Right. So if he wasn't up to the challenge at that moment, that wouldn't be a total surprise. He picked it off. Like, no, if you're going to throw it a little bit behind him, I'm going to dive and I'm going to intercept this pass and you need to be better than that. And so that, that really encouraged me, you know, Cam Hart guy looks like a million bucks in the, in the uniform. And I don't, you know, if that means anything to you, I kind of like that. Um, (laughs) You know, Clarence Lewis was good. I thought Ramon Henderson, you know, he's, he was battling with, he was battling with Lindsay the whole time. Um, so good on him. I'll, everyone looked pretty aggressive in run support. So I, you know, there's a lot to feel encouraged about with the defense, just the way that they competed. I thought the level of play was, was pretty high. Yeah, it's interesting. I am curious to see if, if Maris is a really big beneficiary of this simpler defense as it's been described. I know there was a lot of discussion that maybe he didn't play as much in Clark Lee's scheme because there were so many reads and, and rules to it, but could definitely see him maybe being a beneficiary of kind of just this pin the years back and go sort of defense that Freeman seems to be employing here. 
I would be terrified as a running back trying to have to pick him up. He flies through holes and just kind of has this reckless abandon about him that's um, a little bit intimidating, but exciting for us as Notre Dame fans. Uh, you're right, Walters had a big game, another Bolingbroke product, best one since Micah do Treadway, so that's exciting. And all the talk about linebackers, and we didn't even mention the fact that Drew White, the best linebacker, didn't even play, and Kyle Hamilton didn't play either, and you've dubbed yourself the president of the Kyle Hamilton fan club. So even though he wasn't able to participate in spring ball as he continues to rehab from ankle surgery, how do you expect Freeman to utilize Hamilton once he's healthy, at least maybe compared to how he was utilized last year and under Clark Lee? It's, it's tough to say how they want to use him. The easy way is just they'll plug him into, you know, whatever DJ Brown was doing and, and he'll just play that role. Um, I am hopeful that it'll be a little bit different. So, Marcus Freeman talks about playing free a lot and just being able to, you know, let it loose, right? We don't want a lot of thinking. We, we just want players to play fast, go get the ball, that sort of thing. The, the, the only kind of criticism, I don't want to even call it criticism, just something that I wish was a little bit different about what Clark Lee did with Kyle is I feel like Kyle was, he was always just, it was pegged into it. He was pegged into a scheme, right? So you're, you're, you're a half player on this one. And on this play, you have the tight end and on this play, you're going to blitz. And so it's always like, do you have your specific role and you do your job? Right. And Kyle can do that. The guy doesn't give up catches. He doesn't give up anything. Right. He gives up a catch and people hit me up on Twitter. Like, Hey, what's going on? And you gave up catch. So, so that's what his level is. What I want to see from Kyle is I want him to be given the space to, I don't want to say freelance, but Hey, let, let him take some chances. Okay. You have a guy like this. You have a player who, who, you know, I listen to a lot of the, the, the pre, the pre-draft pods on the NFL stuff. And they all talk about how they, they don't have safeties who are big enough to come up and support the run. They're not quick enough to, they're not good enough in man coverage to cover man. They can't cover the tight ends. They're not big enough. They're, they don't have the range to, to cover a half field and that sort of thing. Kyle can do all that stuff. So you have someone who doesn't really exist in the game right now. Like you need to let him be free. You need to let him, let him take chances, let him use his instincts and go make plays that you can't scheme up. You know, he, he, Kyle in a way is he kind of transcends whatever scheme you have. You just need to let him go. And, you know, obviously you don't, it, it, it can't exist within some framework of the defense, but I want, I want him to take more chances. I want him to, to kind of feel himself a little bit. And because I think that's how you get the most out of him. And that's how you, you come up with a situation where the, the offense doesn't know where he's going to be. You know, I don't know if you remember, if you guys saw the, um, the thing with Trevor Lawrence, when there was a, it was a pre-draft thing. I think he was talking to Herb street. And he said, oh, you know, every time they brought Hamilton down in the box, we knew this was going to happen. I don't want that. I don't want teams knowing what Kyle is going to be doing based on alignment and stuff like that. I want him to be unpredictable. So I think Freeman is that kind of a coach. He, he talks like he's that kind of a coach. I want to see how, if that's how it, how it plays out. So we've been, you know, mostly positive kind of a showing what we're excited about 
coming out of that game, going into the summer and fall camp. So I have to ask, is there anything or, or what concerns you the most about this time as we head now into the summer and into fall camp? Uh, the receivers, for sure. For sure. It's just, there's so much, like if, if I knew everyone was going to be healthy and everyone's going to be available, then I wouldn't really be worried about it. But Kevin Austin, he's had his injury problems. Uh, Lindsay's had his injury problems and he's less so injury. He was more of illness last year, but he's been dinged up a little bit. So look, you know, you, you've got, you've got the five seniors, you've got the two sophomores, we have no juniors and, you know, the freshmen, the freshmen coming in. So, you know, it all, a lot of things got to go right. If they do go right, they'll be okay. But if, if, you know, if we see something like last year, then it's going to, it's going to be a tough situation. I agree with you on the receivers and we've been pretty critical of them in the past, but I do want to say Avery Davis looked like a veteran receiver on Saturday. He's clearly comfortable. He was Cone's favorite target, which I don't think will be the case once the season starts and once Mayer is fully healthy, but I thought he played really well. He found the soft spot in the zone multiple times. Um, That requires an awareness of the position that, Probably took him some time to get because, you know, he had bounced around from position to position. But this is a good segue to uh, the news that came out today that Jordan Johnson, the freshman receiver and former five-star recruit, will be entering his name into the transfer portal. He came in with a ton of hype. I think rivals are – one of them had him as like the sixth receiver total in his class. He certainly generated a lot of discussion among fans in the media – but he never made so much as a dent on the field. I mean, he didn't even have a catch on Saturday. So I guess the news isn't totally surprising. But what was your reaction um, when you saw that? Um, not good. It was not good. <laughs> it's not good because, it, I mean, for for lots of reasons, I guess. It, but mainly, you now are you're down to two receivers from 2019 and 2020. You don't have any juniors. You have two sophomores. That's not, it's not good. Especially in this era, you know, it, it, you can't, this, that cannot happen. Like, I, I don't, I don't, it's not a blame thing. It's not, I don't, I don't know who to blame. I don't know who to, you know, I don't know if it's anyone's fault or whatever. It cannot happen. It cannot be the case. There needs to be a better management of the position um, and this is outside of Jordan Johnson specifically, right? Just generally speaking, he w- they were the, the sophomore class, the 2020 class was very important, no matter who it is, you have to get them. And whether he's a five-star or whether he's a three-star or whatever, he was recruited. He was recruited for two years. And as you said, he didn't, he, he didn't make a dent and it didn't look like he was going to make a dent. That's so that's the thing is he wasn't going to contribute and we don't know if Watts and uh, Brunel are ready to contribute either. You know, Brunel had the hamstring problems. Um, You know, information on Watts is pretty scarce. Um, So we don't, we don't know what we have there. And we know that we know that they like Lorenzo styles. That's what we know. And he's an incoming freshman and he looked pretty good in the game. But at the same time, you know, if something happens to those five seniors, like Avery Davis, something happens to him, someone tweaks a hamstring, someone rolls an ankle or something like that, what are you going to do? 
Yeah, and, and it's an issue, I think, like on a number of levels because as some people have alluded to, perhaps it was just a, a misevaluation of Johnson. Not that not to say that Notre Dame would would not have taken him, but to just that he wasn't, you know, maybe a five star receiver. Um, if that's the case, well, then you misjudged it in the first place, I guess. But second of all, like you said, it's just kind of a little bit of a consistent theme with, with struggling to get the most out of your receiving core. And, and you've hit on it with this this senior group of receivers who, while they've had their, their share of injury history, I mean, really, it was really a cameo appearance from, that's that's saying a little bit lightly, a, a nice 2019 from Braden Lindsay, but still not really a full season put together. And, and outside of that, um, we just haven't seen a lot out of this group. And it's just, it's so untested that it makes you wonder kind of what the issue is and what the answer is with, with actually developing that group. But it's something that needs to be, to be resolved and, and resolved in short order. Yeah, I think there's definitely some pressure on Della Alexander. There was pressure before this news, but now there really is not. I, I feel like they've recruited pretty decently well at the position, but developing has been an issue. But then again, there's been guys like Miles Boykin, who was under Alexander and really came on during his senior year. Claypool really, really developed it as it went on. So we're going to learn a lot about the position and maybe the future of the position as well this year. Deion Colsey is going to get there in the fall. He's, you know, he was a super high recruit, had big time offers. So it'll be interesting to see how he plays out. But Pete Sampson, Matt Fortuna said it today on their podcast. They're obviously much more than in the know than Luke and I are. And from their sources within the program, they just said that it was just a misevaluation from the recruiting experts, just in the sense that he was maybe not quite as talented or maybe just not as good of a receiver um, as he was made out to be. But now, obviously, and especially at a time when Notre Dame and uh, the pressure to recruit five stars is at an all-time high to sort of get over the hump, when one doesn't hit, it's going to hurt. And when one doesn't hit at a position of need, it's it's really going to hurt. And I don't really know, you know, in this case, like you said earlier, Greg, I don't know if there's anyone to blame, but – is there anything you think could be fixed maybe from a recruiting standpoint, from a development standpoint? What do you think is, if there is a solution to this problem? I mean, first you have to, I think I've always kind of been critical just of this idea that you only want to take three receivers in a class. And that's the, that came to bite him this time, you know, in 2020 uh, in the Jordan Johnson class, you know, you, you have guys like Jalen McMillan who, you know, you don't, you don't really push for in the end. You know, you, you had, you take Jay Brunel over someone like Michael Redding, right? You could have taken Michael Redding as well. You could have taken four people and you didn't. And the thing with losing him is there's just an opportunity cost there that you can't get back. You can't go back in time and bring someone in to, I mean, that's, it's not that you lost him. It's not just that you lost him and whatever you you know, whatever, whatever he was ranked, it doesn't matter. Once they're on campus, there, there are no stars. You don't get extra, you don't get extra points or yards for your star ranking. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether it's so if Chris Fink is the best slot, then he's the best slot and he's the one who's going to play. Um, so, but the point is, is like he has four years of eligibility remaining. So that's a receiver on the roster with four years left, who is not unavailable to you anymore. So how do you, you know, and, and people talk about the portal and whether or not they should replace them on the portal. You know, maybe, right? I don't know. Maybe maybe you find someone on the portal who this year you can help. But they're going to be here for a year. That's not – that doesn't solve the long-term problem. So I think that they need to be 
you know, more, more aggressive with, you know, you need to take more than three. Don't, you know, if you see a bunch, if we, what do, what do people, what do we always say? I don't know if you guys say this, but you seem like smart guys. I think you should say this. Um, you know, take them all, take, take, take whoever, right? If you have, if it's like people are talking about linebacker this year and linebacker recruiting. Oh, you know, are we going to pass up on Sebastian Cheeks? Just take them and then figure it out later. Take the receivers that want to come and figure it out. Right. Cause someone is not going to fit. Everyone knows that someone always doesn't make it right. You take a bunch of corners and some make it and some don't. And that's just the nature of it. If you only take three, then you, you better make sure that they are going to make it. Cause if they don't, then what do you do? You, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. I mean, that's how you promote competition too. So now I totally in agreement there. Um, I guess, um, more, well, depending on how you interpret this, lighter note, um, obviously, once Johnson made the announcement, Notre Dame Twitter and the message boards exploded, as they always do, um, when something of this nature happens. So I, I, I'm curious, what was the most absurd take you came across after the news broke? Oh, man. Look, there is there is no player that could have transferred that would have lit the the Twitter on fire, like Jordan Johnson. He, he was the one, the takes were, were coming. And yeah. So this is worse than Jerkovic. I think <laughs> at least the reaction. Um, yeah. Because of last year, because of last year. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it, they, they didn't play him last year and the whole narrative of the off season was, you know, five-star receivers and you need more of them. And we lost to, you know, teams with five-star receivers and five-star quarterbacks and that sort of thing. So it was, uh, it was coming for sure. Um, the worst take, um, I don't know. There were some bad ones. I, I think it's all just, you know, you know, people are going to go in on Dell and, you know, people are going to go in on Brian Kelly and the whole thing about how they, they won't play freshman receivers. Um, People want Brian Kelly out because of this. <laughs> like that was a real thing again. Oh man. Well, listen. You know, it, there are people who will who will feed into that, and it, that is what it is. You know, I, I think anyone who's trying to you're trying to find a way to to blame. It, it just doesn't. There's always something, right? It's it's like a relationship that ends, you know, you, you, you get into a relationship, you know, this is the one and then it doesn't work. And sometimes yeah. there's like with Kevin Stefferson, right. That didn't work. We know whose fault that is, right. It's not, it's not <laughs> Dell's fault, but sometimes it doesn't work and it's not a fit. And, you know, are there things that Notre Dame could have done to keep him around? Probably yes. Right. But if when you're jumping through all these hoops and you're making all these concessions and you think about how can I keep this guy on campus at some point, you know, that you probably say to yourself, am I, am I, am I doing too much? Does the other person need to kind of, kind of contribute to this as well? You know, do they need to meet me halfway? And, you know, 
every that's how everyone probably feels and when it doesn't work it doesn't work and that's the way it goes and I, but i don't think that you know twitter is not the place for you know rational it, thought yeah it, it's just not the place for something like you know it's just that's the way it goes and it's not if notre dame like if notre dame had let's say xavier watson jay brunel right let's say they both killed it in the spring game and Jordan Johnson was leaving. Would anyone, would anyone really say anything? No. Cause it's like, Oh, well, we have these other guys and they worked out and he didn't. And that's the way it goes. But since they didn't, they haven't done anything either. And so like, you need someone, you needed someone from the sophomore class. You know, that's the, that's the problem. Like they just don't have, they don't have another option and they don't have any juniors. Yeah, which is insane. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, people are going to go after Kelly. They're going to go after Dell Alexander. But did you expect them to go after beat writers? Because uh, we, the two of us, got a real kick out of just reading Pete Sampson's mentions after he tweeted um, just that Johnson was transferring. I think my personal favorite was uh, a guy who said, Pete, you are a moron. You need high end talent to win. BK never gave him a shot. It's his fault. Do you see Saban burying guys at the end of the bench? And this is the kicker. We will never win anything with you in the media covering this team or BK coaching the team. So I didn't know that specific writers were the reason why Notre Dame can't get over the hump. But uh, there you go. You know what? I missed that one. I missed it. I did not see the uh, Pete Sampson screw this up and, and continues to screw this up. I didn't see that. Um, I don't think it's Pete Sampson's fault. I'm, I'm just gonna throw that hot take out yeah, there. Go on, I'm gonna throw that out not there. the only one though. We got another one. <laughs> Pete loves going 10 and 2 with a bunch of fifth year three stars. Don't lie to yourself. Pete is the only guy that can actually encourage widespread real pressure on BK for exposing him for the fraud he is to the fan base. This is a different person. So Pete Sampson was under attack because he tweeted out the news. I didn't see that. I don't, I don't recognize the correlation there yet, but now I'm wondering, is it Pete Sampson's fault? Is he the root of the issue? I can't rule it out. That's the thing. We can't rule it out, and I think that since we can't rule it out, we should peddle it as true. Yeah, honestly, they – that might have to get hashtag fire Samson trending because that might be the only way we get. I think that I think I think the 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 worst one that people is is actually like not just lunacy, like blame Peep Samson. I think the one that it, that bothers me the most is like Brian Kelly didn't give him a chance. I I just don't. What does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, to your point, like they needed somebody in that class to step up. The job's there for the taking. Like I, I don't know how you how you're supposed to rationalize that as Kelly not giving. I mean, a he chance. he took how many reps in this the blue gold game, and he was they obviously knew he was leaving, right? I mean, there's the guy left two days later. So you think you think they knew going? I into the absolutely game? think so. If he had had like four catches or you know hell anything in that game. You think it was all dependent on, or not dependent on that at all? He was already at one foot out the door. I mean, maybe a foot and a half. I, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> to me, there's no way they didn't know. I, I just, but even so, even so, right? Let's say they didn't know, right? 
he got all those reps. He could any look, they were all out there, right? Anyone could have shown themselves at that point. It's just like watch the game. Watch the game. Was he open? Did he look dynamic? Like, did he look like did he look better than Joe Wilkins looked? You know? And and I just didn't think he did. Now, when I was watching it, it's not like I don't, it's like, oh, he's garbage or whatever. He he looked, he looked what like he looked fine. Right. He looked, but it's, he didn't, he did not play Joe Wilkins. And then they tried to throw him a screen and he didn't, he didn't know the play. Yeah, he blocked. He, he blocked. Right? He didn't know what On he was a doing. screen designed to him. Right. So who is that Brian Kelly's fault? They call, they checked into the play. They audibled. Go watch it back. They, they all, yeah. they don't do the thing. They look to the sideline. They change the play. They call the play for him. And Jordan Johnson knows he messed up because he put, put his helmet. And if people haven't seen it, go to my Twitter feed. I put it on Twitter. On Sunday. Well, he's one of the best followers on Twitter if you're a Notre Dame fan, so check him out at Greg2126, as well as his work for UHND.com and his co-host of the Notre Dame USC Football Podcast. Greg, really appreciate you taking the time, man. Let's talk again soon, all right? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. Okay, let's talk some NFL draft. Notre Dame had nine total players selected, which trailed only Alabama and Ohio State, who each had ten. Context, Alabama had six first-rounders to Notre Dame zero, but... Overall, only one less. Um, it marks a new high in the Brian Kelly era and the most since 10 players got selected by Notre Dame in 1994. Which storylines stood out to you over the weekend? Yeah, I mean, you hit it on it right there with uh, really good draft all in all, I think, for Notre Dame. Um, you know, I was irrationally angry that Wu fell. And even knowing now what caused that, I'm still a little bit ticked, honestly. Like, I don't get how that wasn't cleared up sooner. Um, further, just like, how do you watch that guy's tape and not want him on your team? But I, I digress. Um, it was a very good draft for Notre Dame. And like you said, trailed only Bama and, and Ohio State in total picks. But Bama now has 43 first-round picks since 2010. Um, and the Bear, Chris Falica, always loves to tweet out Bama's first-round picks in that time frame compared to other schools' total picks. And they outrank – like good schools, Texas A&M, Washington, Oregon, South Carolina, and Texas. And so like on the stars matter note that we've talked about in the past with recruiting should also show you that that draft rounds matter as well, because um, as we saw those, those six or whatever, five, six first round picks they had. Yeah. Um, they, they definitely, uh, they outshone our draft picks on January one and their best offensive player or highest rated highest drafted player didn't even play in that game. So, uh, you think about that, I guess, a little bit too. But all in all, um, super happy for Ian Book. Like just one last giant middle finger to all the idiots that gave him grief the last three years going in the fourth round. Thought that was awesome. Really kind of everybody besides Wu went above where I think people expected them to be. And, and when I say above, I mean that earlier. Um, I was surprised that, that Ben Skoranek got drafted, but I'm happy. You know, he bet on himself in Notre Dame and, and made it happen for himself. So like I said, really good draft for Notre Dame and like – hey, a playoff team should have eight, nine draft picks. So that's that's good to see. Yeah, at first I was just shocked that Owusu-Kormo was falling. And then even into the second round, I was like, oh, my God. But then it started to slowly change for me a little bit when I realized the Browns could actually get him as he kept going and kept going. And then ultimately they trade up and get him, which I'm super, super excited about. I, I'm not really even sure how to react about like the Browns I think draft grades are pretty stupid because how do you grade a draft when none of these guys have actually played a thing? I think that's kind of dumb. Right. 
But a lot of draft experts are saying that the Browns had one of the best drafts of any team, and I kind of agree. When you get a player like Wu in the second round, especially at pick 52, and they just had to trade up seven spots to get him, that's a huge, huge get, especially um, for a Browns defense that struggled a lot at times, especially in the postseason when fucking Chad Henney is the one who buried him in the in the playoffs. But, yeah, that was great. Obviously happy for Ian Book. Happy for Eichenberg, too. Um, it would have been a little bit cooler if he got drafted just 10 spots earlier. Um, just so that the trend, the crazy trend of under Brian Kelly, where he's pretty much always had a first round starting left tackle, but going to 42 at Miami is cool. Aaron Banks going to San Francisco, just six picks after him going to the 49ers. So he'll join Mike McGlinchey there. It's pretty incredible. This is from Jason Stare that Notre Dame is the first school to produce three offensive linemen taken within the first three rounds of a single draft since 2001 Michigan. So I guess a little surprising because you don't really consider this draft like or this group of offensive line to be like the Mike McGlinchey and Quentin Nelson class, but still just shows you how we just like recycle NFL offensive linemen. Definitely. And, you know, it makes me feel a little bit better about this group we got coming in to, to replace them. Um, but yeah, I saw that stat as well. And I think the only group to do before that was from like the 1970s or the eighties. Like, so like, it's almost like you would have expected Notre Dame to have done that in the past that had that stat happen, but they didn't. Um, but yeah, definitely an accomplishment. And I mean, that group was kind of just lights out the last couple of years. Um, I know Jeff Quinn came under a, a lot of fire a couple of years ago, but Hey, he had three, three draft picks in, in the first three rounds. So I don't really know how much you can complain about him. I know. And how about Dalen Hayes going fifth round to the Ravens? Pretty impressive considering I'm not gonna lie. I wasn't sure he'd be drafted either, but that's a pretty good pick for him. It is. Um, and I think there were some concerns about just a long medical history because he has had his share of injuries, but you know, I don't think there's a more deserving guy to, to go there. So that was definitely really, really good to see. I also saw he tweeted out that the Ravens were his favorite team growing up. So that's another oh, cool. kind of cool little twist to that. So very happy for him. Um, and, and definitely was a bit surprised to see him go as, as early as he did, if, if at all, but happy to see it. Going back to Ian Book, is there a weirder or just more diverse group of personalities in the quarterback room? for the saints than any other team in the NFL. Like Ian book is going to come in and be just like the normal one. And then you have Taysom Hill. Who's I think Matt Fortuna called him the most talked about bad quarterback in the NFL. And then just the anomaly that is James Winston. Like, can you imagine that dynamic? And then with Sean Payton, who's like a quarterback savant, it's going to be so interesting. Yeah. You got a Mormon Ian book. Who's dated a share of supermodels and James Winston is serial you know what? So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite the collection of characters in there. I, I don't know if you saw this, but I, I was looking at kind of just a draft recap and then the saints beat writer for the athletic can't remember the name, try to suggest that, well, the first paragraph made a lot of sense that they wrote saying this actually works a lot because, you know, Taysom Hill doesn't always practice as a quarterback. So books a great backup in that spot. The second paragraph, however, really lost me and said, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the Saints actually might try to use him in, in non-quarterback fashion this year. He has a different frame than, than Taysom Hill, but who knows? Maybe that could happen. And, like, you just must not have watched Ian Book play, and you probably shouldn't be the beat writer for the Saints if that's your assertion because he's not some gimmicky little running back slash wide receiver. Oh, so he he's saying nowhere that near. Ian Book is going to be like a Taysom Hill but, type, basically. Yes, Yes, and I looked at that. I had to read it like three times. Like, there's no way that's that's right. I feel like if you're going to do that with a quarterback, it's like someone who's built like Tim Tebow or Cam Newton. Yeah, Ian Book is 
what are they going to do? Put him in the slot? I, I mean, I think this this individual is just wrong um, and just hasn't doesn't even know who Ian Book. Is. Maybe maybe they're thinking Ian Book's Brandon Wimbush, but I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a wild take. Yeah. Another interesting one was Tommy Tremble going in the third round to the Carolina Panthers. There was obviously a lot of talk going into the draft that he was basically graded out higher than what his college production actually was. He's going into a unique situation in Carolina because now they have Sam Darnold at quarterback, at quarterback and – they're in some weird offensive turnover there, but they do have Joe Brady running the show as offensive coordinator. How do you think he's going to fit in, at least at the beginning? It's a really good fit for him because you're right. Joe Brady is obviously the offensive coordinator there, but I think he really kind of fits the identity of a Matt Rule coach team, just physical as can be and just block the shit out of people. So, um, I mean, I, I still – if he's given the opportunity to catch some passes, I'm sure he will. I mean, if you're, he's kind of had a weird career at Notre Dame, um, to be honest with you. Like we knew he was an incredible blocker this past year and um, he wasn't targeted as much, but his first year of real action in 2019, he actually had quite a few targets like that Louisville game. He had a touchdown. He was, that was the first game of that season. He had probably like five or six catches. So kind of strange how his role diminished in the passing game this past year. Obviously part of that was due to Michael Mayer, but like, Guy can catch, um, you know, he just didn't have a lot of targets. So all in all, I do think it's a good fit. I think Matt Rule is going to know how to use him, um, whether that's just in the running game blocking or ultimately as a, as a downfield threat. But I think it's a good fit for him. Okay, the only guys we haven't mentioned yet that were drafted, Robert Hainsey, he went third round, 95th pick overall to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Obviously a really good situation for him to be in, the defending Super Bowl champs. And then Adi Ugandeji went fifth round as well, um, just a few spots behind Dalen Hayes at 182. He's going to the Falcons. So, again, nine total players, pretty just overall solid group. You know, Notre Dame's been in the college football playoff two out of the last three years. When you do that, you have to have NFL talent. And um, I think it's it's also pretty telling. I saw this stat that over the past 10 years, so – for the vast majority of the Brian Kelly era, the teams with the most top 100 picks, Alabama at 59, obviously, Ohio State at 46, LSU at 41, Clemson at 28, and then Notre Dame's tied with them at 28. So that's a pretty telling set that over the past 10 years, Notre Dame has been able to develop um, not just NFL talent, but pretty high-level NFL talent, at least coming out of the draft. So one last question on the draft. Out of these nine guys, which player do you think will make the most immediate impact on their team. I go with my guy, Liam Eikenberg. I think he might start day one. Um, you know, I, I think he really wanted to go to Miami. I know he had a, a really good process with them. That was the number one spot he wanted to go to, which was interesting because I didn't see him mock there at all, but uh, shows you that these guys who are, you know, having these first hand conversations know a little bit more than the, than the said draft experts, but He's, I know he's pumped to be there, and I think he's going to start day one. So uh, I'm really excited to see that, and I think he's going to play for 10 years. So I'm going with him as the most immediate, and I think ultimately longevity impact as well. Okay. I'm going to be a little bit biased here, but I think it's going to be Ousu Koromoa. I don't know exactly how or like what position he's going to play with the Browns because some people were calling him like a linebacker safety. I don't know about all that, but the Browns had the 27th ranked pass defense in – the NFL last year it was bad and part of that was due to injuries but I think he'll be I don't know if I want to say day one starter because again it's all about fit with him and where he can play and sort of he might be like the nickel guy but I think he's going to come in and help um, in a big way on a Browns team that has high expectations again for 
the second time in the past three years. We saw how it worked out the first time, but I'm hopeful that this time around it'll be a little bit better. Yeah, uh, no doubt. I think that's a good pick as well. I Like I said, I was super pissed off when he didn't get taken in the first round. Even now that I know about this hard condition, I'm still miffed. So really excited to see him just give a big F you to everybody that passed on. Um, so yeah, that'll, that'll be, uh, I think a good landing spot for him and excited to see the impact he has. Yeah. The hard issue that we're talking about, Adam Schefter reported that Wu had a hard issue that came up late in the process and was a concern for most teams. Um, that's why he fell out of the first round and he's cleared now, like doctors ultimately cleared him, but did contribute to that as well as the ankle injury he suffered that prevented him from doing any running in the pro day. But, um, that's it for the draft. Did you get a chance to watch the ACC Network special last night about Notre Dame's one-year stand in the ACC? No, I uh, was kind of caught in the rain walking home from work and got really distracted. And I, honestly, I, I've tried to boycott the ACC Network <laughs> since our departure from it as in football, and I, I didn't really want to watch a lot of our basketball games this year, so I missed that. Um, that was a, a subtle jab at the ACC. I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll catch it down the road, but what about you? How was it? I watched it. It was good. Um, it was good interviews. I, I, I come away just liking Dalen Hayes more and more. He's just an awesome interview. I hope we can eventually get him on this. Um, you didn't necessarily like learn a whole lot. Most of the stuff we had already seen, um, they definitely had a partnership with the Notre Dame media team because you saw some of the clips they used in like Irish Connection um, and things like that throughout the season. But still, overall, very good. It tells a cool story. You got insight from a lot of different people within the program. But I honestly think the best part about the whole thing was the outcry in the lead up to it from like fans of ACC teams, like pissed off that the ACC continues to recognize Notre Dame season. The and Pat Narduzzi. Yeah, Pat Narduzzi. Do you think he watched it? He might have like put it on. You know, those like fake videos. Why well, I call them fake videos of like people when their teams are losing a playoff game, they like throw something at their TV and they like, it's like the viral videos that make the Barstool Sports the world. That's definitely staged, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I could see him doing that for this documentary. (laughs) Or maybe he'll write like another anonymous thing, either to a reporter that he'd kind of been doing throughout the season or we think he had been doing throughout the season. Like whenever there was an article about Notre Dame stature in the ACC and there was an anonymous quote from a coach, I feel like every single time I just assumed it was Narduzzi. So maybe he did one of those things. Yeah. And, and sorry, maybe next time we won't beat you 41 to three, bud. 45 to three. It was even more. Uh, even better. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was not good. I did look at sort of some of the replies and the quote tweets of like when the ACC network was advertising it, it was just pretty much all these ACC fans. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? It's the same reason why they wanted Notre Dame to be a part of it in the first place because of money, because Notre Dame fans are going to watch it. It's ratings are probably going to be better than any other thing that the ACC network could put out at 8 PM on a Monday night. So like, how are these people not getting it? Like it's, it's pretty obvious why they did it. Do they, do they not realize that like, Notre Dame made the ACC network happen. Like without that, there is no TV channel. Like they're indebted to Notre Dame. Like just be educated. It's not that difficult. It's, it's, it's not, it's one hour. And that's, and that seems to basically wrap it up for the uh, 2020 season, at least for now. But uh, that's all I got. You got anything else this week? No. Um, Excited to see where we go from here. But uh, I mean, spring practice over now. We uh, we're, we're nearing the season. Soon enough, I'll start to get that that itch in the, the dog days of summer. But it's it's coming. It's coming. It definitely is. Closer than we think. Um, but that's it for this week. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already, and check out our website as well at sonsofsaturday.com. Um, even though spring practice is over, we'll continue to get content up on our site, and we've got some stuff in the works that I'm pretty excited about, so we'll continue to push stuff out until the season starts. And um, until then, take care, and we'll be back with you guys again soon. Bye.